Okay, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Um, this is part of our series that we started with, Matthew 18. Um, we're walk through the book of Titus, verse by verse, here over the next few weeks. And so it's, it's part of a series that we've called for the life of the church, for the life of the world. And that's a very important thing for us to remember because I think that we get it tangled up sometimes, don't we? That we begin to, to forget that the church's purpose is not entertainment. It is not, it is not to make us feel better about ourselves who are already redeemed. The purpose of the church is to serve as a light in a dark place. The purpose of the church is to be a city on a hill. The purpose of a church is to actually um, be ambassadors of reconciliation, which means while we are gathered here today, we will scatter when this is over. And you guys do a pretty good job of scattering fairly quickly, by the way. Um, That we would scatter when it's over and carry forth the truth of redemption and God's love for this broken and fallen world. That's why we, we've called this for the life of the church, for the life of the world, because if the church is not healthy, can she do her mission? Come on now, you got to know that one. That's a softball. No, she can't, but God can. God's faithful. He'll make the rocks cry if you want to remain silent, which some of us do, myself included. Some of us don't want to say much. Um, but if, if we won't do our job, God will do his. And we miss the opportunity to be part of that mission. Now, we're not all equipped the same, which is why we're gathered together. And it's not incumbent upon any one person to make the mission work. Me included, me most of all. It becomes very dangerous for you if you get the idea that it's my job to do everything. That it's my job to bring them in. It's my job to plan events. It's my job to make sure we properly say goodbye to everybody. It's my job to make sure everybody's well-fed when they have a baby. No, it's not. I have one job, and you're going to hear about Paul's job, and it's in the same lineage, not because I think I'm great, but because it's probably not going to end well. And so, uh, so I have a calling to equip the saints, and that has been so helpful for me to remember that it is my job. Equip the saints, not... Uh, as my good brother William Still, who's Scottish, would say, it is not my job to entertain goats. I know that rankles some of you. Okay. Don't be a goat. It's kind of simple. Um, and so, so Titus is going to teach us how to be a church in a very difficult context. Do you have any idea why sometimes people go, man, you're a Cretan? Is, by the way, is that a compliment? No, it's not. And where did that come from, by the way? Why did it become an epithet? Is that somebody just Pokemon Go just then? I don't want to yell, but that's not, okay. All right, so, so what, what it does it mean to be called a Cretan? Lazy, liar, um, uh, vice-ridden, awful. You're a Cretan is not a compliment. It comes from somewhere, and it, and it comes from not the Bible, but the actual Cretans themselves. Their own poets talk bad about them, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks when we hear what's talked about. So there's a church being planted in Crete that is thorny and rocky and very, very hard ground. In fact, no one would sign up for it. This is the kind of church planting opportunity that people would say, no, thank you. And yet, Paul 
has started a church here, and he's turning it over to someone he loves, not because he's mad at Titus. He actually loves Titus. Titus was his co-worker, a man that we hear about who helped take up the offering to, in the book of Corinth, in the books of Corinth, and he actually delivered one of the letters. So he's a co-worker, somebody that, that, that he refers to as his son. This is not punishment, but this is where we ought to be planting churches where they're actually needed where there is no gospel going forward. where This is one of the reasons that Paul says in another place, I don't want to plant where another man already is planted. I don't want to put a church right across the street from somebody. I want to know where the light needs to shine in the darkness. Because we are called to make disciples, again, not entertain disgruntled goats. And I'm not calling anybody a disgruntled goat, so don't, don't get excited. I didn't have anybody in mind when I said that. And so, here we go. Let's look at what Paul has to say. And it's something that we need to be reminded of is what is it that actually affects how we live? What most, what most affects how you decide to spend your time, your effort, your energy? It's a great question. We've asked it here before. And we've got to revisit it often, don't we, because we forget. What is it that makes us want to do what we do? To, to, to put the time and the effort and the energy into, whether it's Pokemon Go. I, I I'm not going to mention that again, by the way. It's the last time I'm ever going to say it. That, or put a bunch of effort and energy into reading some eight-volume novel thing like L. Ron Hubbard's Battlefield Earth. To put all the effort and energy into knowing that. Right? To know... No disrespect to those of you who love Star Wars. None at all. But to know more about TIE fighters than you do about, I don't know, the Psalms. Right? What, what drives us to know what we know about what we know? And then how does that affect how we then live? Right? Because you're being affected. The decisions that you make are being radically affected by what it is that you are taking in and what it is that you are making, making preeminent in your life. For some of you, it's, it's, it's fear. Fear drives you. The idol of safety and security drives you more than anything else. For some of you, it's the want to be heard. You just got to have the last word, online or off. For some of you, it is this, this aching sense of just, just significance. Right? So we're all kind of driven by something, and we have to take the time to step back and go, okay, what is it? What is it that most dictates how I live. And then the better question is, what ought to? What ought to dictate most how we live, right? So Paul is going to answer the question for us this morning. So if you would, turn your attention to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. What a sentence. One sentence, by the way. And so let's walk through a couple of these things. So Paul straight away is identifying himself. And this is unique to the book of Titus where he calls himself a servant of God. He, other places, calls himself a servant of Christ. Now, there's always a reason why Paul does what he does. And we miss it sometimes because we don't get the provocative nature. And we don't like for people to be provocative. We, we, we don't like to be pressed or pushed. 
Um, and so, so we miss this sometimes. There's a reason why he's saying these things. And, and the reason he's calling himself a servant of God is because on the Isle of Crete, they, were, they, were, they believed that, that Zeus had resided there. And they were all about Zeus worship and all this kind of stuff. And there's all this kind of distortion. If you know anything about Greek mythology, um, it's, it's, the, the gods are twisted. If you've ever read any of this stuff, uh, Virgil's the, the Aeneid or any of those kinds of things, the gods are always at war with each other, and man's just kind of caught in the midst of all that. And so, so they, they had a greatly distorted views of what it meant to be a follower of a god of any kind. And so he's coming in straight away, and he's saying, let me make something very clear to you. I am the servant of Yahweh. I'm the servant of God. And I want you to know that, that that matters because he's kind of, if you remember from Matthew 18, he's essentially saying in childlike humility, I am the creature, he is the creator, and I bow my knee to him, I submit to him. And I want to make it very clear, I'm not coming here for my own purposes, I'm coming here for his purposes, and I want you to know that first straight away before we say anything else. I am submitted to God's plan for redemption. And then he speaks with authority and says, and not only am I a servant, but I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying there is I have been given the authority to preach the gospel. I've been given the authority to tell you about the cross. Now, this actually should take us back to our assurance of pardon, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I want to yet again say to you, we, we put the whole service together. The whole service is connected from call to worship to benediction for one purpose to, to, to give one message. If you clip out any of it, you're, you're not getting all of it. And the sermon is not the main event, by the way, though it gets the main uh, amount of time. Don't mistake that. The whole thing is necessary. So here's a place where you should recognize what Paul said there. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, I purposed to know nothing else among you. No wisdom, no, no, no words, no folly of that nature. I only purposed to know Christ and him crucified. So when he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's hearkening back. That should echo in our minds from the service this morning. So he's saying, I, am, I, I bring no other authority. I am speaking on no other topic. I'm not here to, to, to educate you all on all these other topics that I could educate you on. I'm here to educate you on the purpose of Christ. Which, by the way, the purpose of Christ begins where? What book? Genesis 1.1. And it ends where? Revelation 22, whatever the last verse is, like 27. So the whole thing is, the, is, is, is in there. So he's saying, I am a servant and I have authority. I'm a servant of God and I have the authority to preach to you Christ and him crucified. And then he goes on, but I want to skip down to verse 3 and kind of work our way backward so that we keep things in right order. Um, verse 3, actually verses 2 and 3, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, there's a reason why he says God never lies. Remember, what is a Cretan accused of being? A liar. Do you know why a Cretan is accused of being a liar? Because he follows Zeus, who's a liar. Right? Because Zeus lied. He lied in order, if you know anything about mythology, to have relations with a woman, a human woman, so that, they, that he could have a kid. And so, so that's why Paul says, God who never lies, he makes an emphasis there. It's a bit of a, it would have been a kind of a provocative statement that would have pricked 
the conscience of a Cretan in some way, shape, or form, and it caused him to go, wait, what a second. God who never lies. That's different than our God, right? And so, but what he's made, the point that he's making here is he's making a foundational point. He's saying the foundation of all that you are is founded upon what? The faithfulness of God to redeem as he sovereignly sees fit. Right? That's what it says. It's basically saying, according to the promises before the ages began. So, what work could the Cretans do to attract the affections of the Lord our God? So, what he's saying is, before the ages even began, again, Mind blown. I I don't get it either. It's utterly mysterious to me. Somewhere in eternity past, whatever that means, God decided he would save many on the Isle of Crete before it was even formed. And really, if you think about it, what he said is, I am going to one day love a group of people that ain't worth loving. And you know who that includes? I got one finger at you and three back at me. Uh, Us most of all. That's us too. Who, who of us could say, I think I'm pretty worthy of God's love. All things considered, Cameron, I do have to, I have to say to you, I don't know if you've met me or talked to me, but I, man, I don't ever complain about anything. I love all things God, and I just, I just, I just float on cloud nine. I'm good. I don't know why God wouldn't love me, right? No. No, we too, in eternity past, he decided before ever you committed a sin or ever you committed a good deed. Now, Again, that creates, as we've said in some sermon series past, the sovereignty of God is both the question, right? It raises tons of questions. Whoa, 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 whoa. If he decides in eternity past, then what are we doing? Why does any of this matter? But it also is the answer to the question. If he didn't decide in eternity past, and your deeds are evil, all of them, even the good deeds are filthy rags, what hope do you have? The hope you have is that he decided long before creation. Now you see why we sang that song. Father, long before creation. So he's saying that it's God's choice. And notice what else he says. And it's also God's decision as to when the preaching of the word occurs. It was God's decision when Paul would come to Crete and when Titus would set up the church. And it was God's decision as to what word would fall and find purchase within the heart's of those men and women. Now, again, I know that raises a host of questions for us, but the truth of the matter is God loves far more people than you and I do. And he loves a whole lot of people that you would never talk to in your your practical double predestinarianism because you choose who gets to hear and who doesn't because you choose who gets to hear all of it and who doesn't, right? We do uh, within our sphere of influence in our disciple-making or lack thereof. And so what's happening here is Paul is saying the firm foundation is the faithfulness of the Lord our God, the promise maker and the promise keeper. And so he's making it very clear he keeps the covenant and it is not founded on you. And again, one of the reasons we struggle with that is because, again, we have this, this really perverse notion that our deeds ought to matter. We have this perverse notion that we ought to be able to decide how much God loves us. And we, we just we can't seem to escape that in toto, ever. We just struggle with it, don't we? We have this perverse notion that, that, that we ought to have more say in it than we do. You do have a say in it. Damnation. 
He's got a say in it. Redemption. Praise God that he chooses as many as he does. And notice, he tarries. Why? What does 2 Peter 3 say as to why he tarries? Because he loves more than you do. Because we want to be delivered at current from this current suffering. And God says, no, not yet. The family's not finished. The family is not finished. Now go and make disciples. And so the foundation of all that we are and all that we have faith in and all that we know is God's faithfulness. Now let's take with that information, now let's go back to the beginning where Paul says, I am, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, is he saying here that it's for the sake of them becoming Christians? <laughs> and and I, I agree with most commentators who say no. Actually, what he's saying is the actual growth of faith in those who are elect. And so what he's saying is he's talking about sanctification or maturation. Remember Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Jesus Christ gives apostles, of which he is, prophets, pastor teachers for the sake of the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ would be mature unto the fullness of the glory of Christ. Right? That's a paraphrase, obviously. And so he's just stating that another way. He's just saying, listen, I am a servant, a slave of God who is faithful to redeem and an apostle of Jesus who has the authority to make it happen I am doing that because I have one job. I have one calling. And that calling is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And that is my lineage too. And he's saying that he, he does it so that their faith would grow, actually. Now, what is faith? Faith is hope in the things not seen, right? And that is not a faith is not where you kind of like buy a lottery ticket and hope you win which somebody did, it was like $583 million or whatever. They may get like two after taxes or something. I don't know. It'll be fine. They're going to be okay. Um, it's not a, a wringing of the hands type thing. It is a, a full assurance in that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he said he would do and that God didn't leave us here to languish in darkness. No, he's coming back. And so, so this faith has to do with trusting in and knowing who God is and what is his will. What is the will of God again? Got to be at least one of you in here who might know this. What's that? That none should perish. It's redemption. That no actual member of the family as determined would perish ever. Right? And so, so the important part about this is is that our, our faith is in a God who loves so much greater than we do. In fact, yeah, Exodus 34, 5 through 7 is a great passage for you to memorize because that's who God is. He, is. he is loving, he is merciful, he is slow to anger, he is forgiving to thousands upon thousands. His justice does come, but it extends to but four generations, and there is redemption, and there is, it's, it's just amazing what God is. So that is where our faith ought to be firmly planted, not ever in our work. And this should result in knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of what truth? 
The truth that God came to redeem because he loves. The truth that God loves Cretans, of which some of you are numbered probably, myself, probably chief Cretan among you. And that God loves the unlovely and that God redeems and saves to the uttermost. The knowledge of that truth and then how that should affect us and change us. Because he goes on to say that, that that inward stuff, that faith, that knowledge should come out of you, right? In terms of godliness, which accords with, or in the Greek it actually says, which produces godliness. Now some of you are starting to go, uh-oh. What's he about to tell us we got to do? Well, let me tell you what godliness is. And let me tell you what it isn't. To look like God is to look like who? Jesus. And what did Jesus do that brought the most glory to God? Forgave sin. He healed. He loved. He was hospitable to the inhospitable. He was hospitable to the ones that no one wanted at the party. He, he saved to the uttermost. He went after people. It's starting to sound a whole lot like I'm just reciting Matthew 18 all over again, isn't it? Because remember, when they asked the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, what did he say? No, no boys, you, you got the wrong question. You're not even in. You presuppose way too much. To be in, you've got to be humble like a child, which means you do the things I do. And let me tell you what that looks like. That means that you're hospitable and that you make sure that the work of the ministry continues and goes out like it's supposed to. We've got an opportunity with Philip Mason, Zach Wagner, uh, Johan Guadalupe, and Kara Oliver. We've got an opportunity there. Not just them. We've had an opportunity with Brian and Mandy Stock, and praise God, they've been 100% funded. They had a whole lot to raise, it felt like. And God was gracious and faithful. And so, so we are to participate in that. And in addition to that, we are to do radical surgery to anything that would carry us away from flourishing in those things. Beginning with ourselves first, because the plank is larger than the speck, as it turns out. And also, too, when one gets lost, who's not here today and why? How long they've been gone? Do you know? to go after them and tell them, don't forget, we love you and the church needs you and your gift. And to remember that when you do kind of get sideways with somebody or they get sideways in sin, to go and tell them because you say to them, hey, deal with this so you can come back into the family and enjoy all the fruit of being part of the redemptive covenant family. And if they won't listen to you, Take two or three more to make sure you know what you think you know. Would that we would do that. That would change some things, wouldn't it? Some of us need to run things by people before we hit sin. And so, so then we, if that doesn't work, we put it before the church because we, we want them back, not because we want to make sure they stay gone and never come back. That's what it means to be godly. That's why we did Matthew 18. For those of you who might be wondering how all this fits together. To be godly is to care about what God cares about. And he cares about redemption above all things. He cares about redemption. You may say, well, I thought he cared about the regulative principle of worship. As it applies to him in certain ways and doing things. I don't know why I use that voice. I usually go with the redneck voice. I don't know why I change this time. But you know, I, 
He cares about that only so much as it, as, it, as it glorifies him so that people would know that he loves them. How dare we take and twist it and make it about anything else? So Paul says, I, I came. I am given this task so that, so that you all would grow more and more into the mission of God because he saved you through no fault of your own because of the hope of eternal life in you. That's why I am what I am to you. That's what Paul's saying to Titus. And what he's saying Titus ought to be to them. And what the elders who we're going to talk about next week who are set up ought to be to the church. And what the church ought to be to the world. Do you understand that? Because if we're not disciple making, just, it's, it's, just, it's really this simple. If we are not disciple making, in some way, form, or fashion, I know for some of you, you're going, oh, we're going to start counting stuff. Ooh. No, we're not, because I hate that. I ain't interested in branding or counting or any of that kind of stuff. You know whether or not you're participating in disciple-making. I don't have to tell you. You know. But if we're not disciple-making, then we're not doing church biblically. And part of disciple-making is justice. And part of disciple-making is fair trade. And part of disciple-making is voting well. Part of disciple-making is praying for people. Part of disciple-making is taking dinners to those who've just had babies. Part of disciple-making is loving the lost. It is loving the wandering, loving the found, all of it. All of life ought to become for us disciple-making because you're doing it. People are paying attention to how you live your life. They are. It so struck me so many times when someone would leave uh, the, the job, my previous job as a physical therapist, someone would leave and all of a sudden everybody had all these opinions about that person and they had never even, I've never even seen them interact. I'm going, why do you have such strong opinions about who just left? They just do. They're taking in information on you all the time. It's not just the NSA. It's everybody around you. They're paying attention, especially the children as a matter of fact. I made a bunch of them mad this morning. I don't think they're going to look at me again. So, so I want you to recognize, again, why do we exist? And you may say, can we move on to a better topic? No, we can't. And Because we're going to forget, and we're going to lose sight, and we're going to get sideways, and, and we're going to have, we're not all at the same level of sanctification in here this morning. And so we need to be reminded constantly of who we are, whose we are, and why we are still here, beloved. And that's what Paul, straight away before he, because this is one of his longest greetings, actually. In fact, I think it is his longest greeting of the epistles. He wants to make sure, because again, Titus is going to plant, or, or, or continue to plant, in very, very hard ground. Is it easy to plant a church in this culture now? No. Not a real church that does disciple-making, it's not. You want to gather a crowd? Oh, that's easy. That's easy. You throw some glory bombs, and then it's on, right? Uh, I don't, I don't, I've never thrown one, so I don't know. But it's hard. It's hard in these days, and it's getting harder still. And does that mean that God is handcuffed, hands are tied? No. No, because before creation, Father, long before creation, you decided. 
So take heart, beloved. It doesn't matter how thorny, how hard the ground. It doesn't matter the response. It doesn't matter if, it's, if you get pushed back against. It doesn't matter if they don't like you anymore. All of that will just come untrue someday. And the Lord has decided. He who is sovereign has determined, and that is good to us. Like I said, I know it raises a whole host of questions. Trust me, they're circling in my head right now. How will I answer when someone asks? But I know that if it's not true, we have no hope at all. So, how is your faith and knowledge of God growing and changing how you live in godliness? Where is your your faith being tested for you to to have to kind of decide uh, and and learn about the faithfulness of God? Where are you, where's it, and I'm not saying go out and do something crazy. Like, I'm going to go buy a, F-350 or, I don't know, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, 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 don't trot it. Your faith will be tested. All you got to do is open your eyes and know what's going on. Your faith will be tested if you watch the news. Your faith will be tested if you have children. Your faith will be tested if you get involved in another human being's life. Trust me. And how is your knowledge growing? How is your knowledge of things growing? And it's not just about reading a book. It's not just about doing Bible studies. That is part of it, but it's got to be applied somewhere. And do you recognize that godliness is about having a heart for redemption, not about being perfect? It's not about, Christ already did that for you. You ain't got to worry about that no more. And amen, right? Because that's what kills us. That's, just what, that's what wears us out is trying to be perfect and trying to get better when we're already best in Christ Jesus. So how is that process going for you? And it's worth thinking about, right? I know we don't like to look sometimes at stuff and we're like, ignorance is bliss for a reason, Cameron. I mean, come on. Yeah, and damnation's not bliss for those who go. Let's look back at the last verse where he says to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. One thing I want you to notice is that the, at the end of verse 3 and at the end of verse 4, he calls God our Savior and then he calls Jesus our Savior. There's a reason that he's doing this is because he wants them to see that there is no disunity within the Godhead. Again, he's dealing with a group of people who believed in a, in a pantheon of gods that were all working against each other. And he wants them to see very clearly, no, there is no disunity in this Godhead. God who is our Savior is the same as Jesus who is our Savior, which you're like, well, if you want to explain something, there's got to be easier ways than coming up with the Trinity. Agreed? Uh, but that's a mystery I don't know how to figure out right there. But what he is doing is making sure that they know there's no division here. It's all one purpose. And we would do well to remember that because, again, some of you really struggle with the idea that we have been saved to God, not from him. That we have been restored to him primarily. Yes, we've been saved from his wrath, which is not an eternal attribute. I get it. Right? That's an eternal response to sin that's different than an attribute. But we have been restored to God because he loves us. And some of us, our language, we hardly ever say anything about God the Father. And remember, what did Jesus, who did Jesus come to reveal and glorify? God. If you're being transformed in the image of Jesus, who are you revealing and glorifying? God, the Father. 
And so Paul is making it very clear here that it's God who sends Jesus, who chooses to save us, and Jesus who accomplishes that which was needed for salvation. And so both grace and peace are commended to Titus, and it is commended unto us. Remember, grace is unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. Peace is restoration fully with God. That means you get to come boldly before the throne. We are talking about this morning in the deacons meeting. What a great act of hospitality. Have you ever thought about it that way? That God, in a great act of hospitality, said, I want these folks to be able to come to me, to come into the throne room, to come into the Holy of Holies and not be obliterated by their sin. How many of you would sacrifice one of your children so that people could eat at your house? I know it sounds weird when you say it that way, right? But get that God wanted so badly for us to be there, that grand act of hospitality that he would send his son so that we could come boldly before the throne to receive both grace and mercy when we needed them most. So do you celebrate the work of both God the Father and Jesus the Son in your salvation? Now, I'm not, don't, don't get tweaked out because I've had a few people ask me, like, well, if that's, who, who am I supposed to pray to, right? Like, I don't want to get in trouble as if God's sitting up there going, oh, man, if that guy prays wrong, cancer the liver. No, that's not what he's doing. It's not how it works. And I understand we want to get it right, right? I, I get it. It's fair. Jesus told you how to do it. He gave you the Lord's Prayer. We went through that last summer. Notice who he points to. Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And on from there. So we can say that in Jesus' name, right? And so don't, don't get so tangled up. If you need the Holy Spirit, call on him. If you need wisdom and guidance, who you call? Holy Spirit's a great person to talk to. It's okay to talk to the Holy Spirit, by the way. You're not going to catch on fire or anything weird. I don't get, no glory bombs will be thrown on your behalf. And so we need to make sure that we recognize that God the Father, because if we don't, then we lose two-thirds of the Bible. The Old Testament goes. You've got to give it up. And you shouldn't. It's beautiful. There's so much grace in it. And so do you recognize that God is the author of your salvation? God is, who sent Jesus to be the effectual, the, the price paid. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. He says, The Father is Savior because he has redeemed us by the Son's death so that he might make us heirs of eternal life. But the Son is our Savior because he shed his blood as a pledge and price for our salvation. Thus the Son brought us salvation from the Father and the Father bestowed it through the Son. There's also the work of the Holy Spirit which Paul doesn't talk about here. So what do we learn from this greeting but sometimes we probably just skip right over because it's a greeting. We learn, one, the goal of church, the goal of church is to help us grow in faith and knowledge of the gospel that should be displayed in a transformed godly life. Now, that's, there's a whole range there, by the way, right? Sanctification is a, is a, is a process that is broad. We're not all going to look exactly the same. Godliness will not look the same in every single one of us. It doesn't look the same in me as it does in Susan. It looks very different. And in some of you as well. So give room for God's massive creativity and be gracious to yourselves on this. 
Growing in godliness means you're growing in caring about people being redeemed, disciples being made. Second, that the basis of this goal is God's promise of eternal life as accomplished in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. There's no other way. Let me finish with a quote. Now, this quote, it's a little chewy, but it's okay. It's okay for you to be challenged. It's okay for it to fly over your head the first time and you have to read it a second time. Don't be lazy. Sometimes we need to work for something. That's why we don't read the book of Numbers. Is we, you need to. It's good. It'll, it'll teach you that people who gripe don't get very far. R. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell say this, Those who learn that God's love for them originates in forever past, extends to forever future, is proclaimed now at the command of God, required the blood of Christ, and allows repentance without fear of rejection, will desire to honor the one who loves them so. Did you get that? That when you understand that the God who long before creation began decided on your salvation again, mind blown, and not only did he decide it, but he ensured that it would extend all the way across eternity, that it could not be undone. That should be good news to us because some of you feel like you've been undone. Some of you feel like you could do something that could get you undone. It's just not true. I've tried to pry my hand, myself out of the hand of God. My wife can tell you, I did it for 10 years. I thought about suicide. I thought maybe, maybe suicide would get me all the way out. I know that makes some of you uncomfortable. Okay, it's just true. And so you can't pry. And that, what that does is sets you free to appreciate the grace you've been given and to walk in newness of life. Now listen at the consequence if you don't. Where such a desire does not exist, the presence of grace has no proof for the watching world or for one's own heart. See, when we don't get this, it damages us both in the church and in the world. So that's why I can say this is both for the life of the church and for the life of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough to get next to us and, and, and be loving to us even when it can push against us some. Thank you that you cared so much for Cretans that you decided long in eternity past that they should be redeemed. Thank you that you saved Cretans like us. Thank you that you give us such a beautiful witness to the watching world where darkness reigns, it seems. God, thank you that Jesus actually reigns, even though it doesn't look like it right now, according to Hebrews 2. Thank you that we have a sure and finished salvation so that we could be set free to be ambassadors of so glorious and beautiful a reconciliation. In Christ's name, amen.